So for months, for months, somebody just told me this, for months I've been sitting up here saying we're almost done with the book of John, <laughs> which is true if you go to five, six, seven, eight, ten verses at a time. For months we've been very close to the end of the book, but today we are actually at the very end. This is our last day in the book of John. We started in uh, first week of February uh, 2016, right, 20. Uh, 2004, right? 2016, uh, 2016 so a year, year and 10 months. We finally got through an entire book and uh, finally ends today. John ends by telling us again, as he has through this whole thing, he talks, teaches us things by telling us these intimate stories about Jesus and his disciples. And there's no different today. He ends the whole book where Jesus is having this breakfast around a campfire at the beach. And in it, we learn how much God cares for us, how we're to care for each other. And also, he gives us the certain hope that we have that we can carry with us even through the roughest days, the roughest days. So would you please stand one more time out of respect for the reading of God's word? This is John chapter 21, verses 15 through 25. Let's now listen to God's inerrant word together. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old... You will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that was going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And so the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. And yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but that if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are many more, many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it teaches us things about you that we would never guess in a million years because of our focus on self but you are teaching us about your mercy and compassion that is beyond measure, 
teaching us about how you care for us, about how you've instituted the church to care for us and how we're to care for each other, and ultimately the hope that you have given us, Lord, in our short-sightedness to help us to continue to think, to think it through to the end game, Lord. And so we pray that you would help us do that today as we see the beauty of Jesus in these pages. Lord, please give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promised to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Uh, I, grew up, uh, I grew up Polish. My dad was 100% Polish, and I was adopted, actually. And he always told this story that he, would go to the adop- he went to the adoption agency and said, I want a blonde-haired, blue-eyed baby boy, and he has to be Polish. And the adoption people would look at him and be like, Mr. Novak, you know this is already a long shot, right? <laughs> Let's be reasonable. And, uh, but the joke was, two weeks later or two months later or something, they called him and said, guess what, Mr. Novak, you're not going to believe it. We actually have a, a baby boy, and he's Polish. Later in life, I found out that I was actually only a, a, a small bit Polish. I'm actually mostly English, Irish, Scottish. How about that? It explains my strange fascination for kilts and bagpipes and fine men's clothing. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know what the British are good at? What I, what I love about the British, my, my peeps, the British, what I love about the British is they have great words for persevering through hardship, words that we Americans don't really use. Like, it's very English to say stiff upper lip. We all know what that means, but, but we never, who, who has ever said stiff upper lip in conversation with the buddies? Nobody. They have better words than that. They have words like dreadnought. Dread meaning fear, not meaning don't, meaning it really means, it means to fear nothing in the face of adversity and suffering, to fear nothing. It's a great word. Uh, in other words, dauntless. We don't use that word. It means the same way, to be without fear. Uh, resolute. I think my favorite out of this bunch, I've been thinking about what that word means a lot this week. What does it mean to be resolute? Um, it means to be firm and steadfast, to be fixed, to be unwavering and determined in purpose. The Bible says a lot about that. The one word that we do, we share, that, 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 that's a very good English word for adversity, uh, uh, is, is a biblical word, persevere. We use that because it's a Bible word, persevere, perseverance of the saints, persevering through hardships. We don't use these words very much. They're very British, and they're very British because the British learn them the hard way. It's very, uh, not long ago in their history, in World War II, when um, at the very beginning of the war in 1940, when their forces were almost annihilated at Dunkirk, there was a point in the war in 1940 when they did not have enough soldiers on the mainland to protect themselves. And, and the only thing that saved them really was the fact that the Hitler could not mount an offensive by, by sea. He just couldn't pull off a, a sea landing, and that's the only thing that saved them and kept them safe. Had they been able to get there, they would have been demolished immediately. And when they talk about their darkest hour, when you read the history, it was crazy scary how close they were to being annihilated 
and, 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 and extinct, uh, extinct, really crushed by the, by the German war machine. And so they learned these words and they meant something to them. They got through that period and these words became common language in English vocabulary and British vocabulary because the reason they were able to get through it was because they knew that they, what they were doing, the struggle that they were in had a purpose, it had meaning. And it helped to carry them through even when things looked absolutely impossible. Converse to that, if you think about the opposite to that, the thing that makes suffering or hardship intolerable is the idea that there's no meaning in it. There's no purpose. If that's what you think, if you're in suffering or hardship and you think that it's meaningless or without purpose, that's when people check out. That's when people give up hope. And there's a lot of this that speaks to us. There's a, the church is a lot like Britain in the 1940s, more than we want to admit. We have been called to follow Christ, which means that we have been called. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says when, a man, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die, meaning to, we are being called to die to ourselves in big ways. Uh, and, and the Bible talks about being, we're called to follow Jesus. We're called to come and share in the sufferings of Christ, which is the death of self. Maybe, actually, maybe real death of self. Maybe just means things that feel like death to us because it calls upon us to give up things that we feel we must have to be okay. Uh, man, and that's hard. It's hard and it makes it even harder when we are on an island and it seems like the entire world and in some cases parts of that used to be part of the church are all against us, all warring against us. It's hard to follow Jesus when there's so much against us. And all of it is telling us that this kind of suffering, the suffering that Christ calls us to, is meaningless and purposeless. But the reality is, it is not. It is the most meaningful, the most purposeful thing anyone can engage in, to follow Christ and to glorify God. And that's what we've been called to do. Jesus has called each of us individually to follow him. And he gives us everything that we need to do that. And he comforts us through our sin and through our suffering so that we can comfort one another and so that we can persevere into life. And that's what the big idea of this passage is. The thesis of this last closing section of John. Jesus wants us to know more than anything that Jesus comforts us so that we can comfort one another as we persevere into life. Jesus comforts us as we comfort one another as we persevere into life. Now let's look at that one piece at a time. First part is Jesus comforts us. Look at verses 15 through 17. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed or tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. 
last time, remember last time Jesus saw Peter, or when I say Peter saw Jesus, right, was when he was hitting bottom in the courtyard of the high priest. Uh, Peter had just denied Jesus three times, and Jesus, it said in the, in the Gospel of Luke, it says on that third denial, Jesus turned and looked at him through the courtyard, eye to eye, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter had been relying on self. And when push came to shove, uh, and uh, it came down to whether he was going to choose self or Jesus, he ended up choosing self over Jesus, because that's what self does. Self chooses self-preservation, when self is the most important thing in life. Uh, But in this scene, we see Jesus has come to Peter, and he's come to him to restore him. He's come to him to reassure him of his love. And there's a bigger story. This story doesn't really begin here on the beach, as I've just kind of alluded to. The story begins with a prayer and a prophecy. Back in Luke chapter 22, Jesus tells Peter that all these things are going to happen. His worst failure is going to happen. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It started with a prayer. Jesus promises to pray for him through this failure to the Father. You think the Father is going to hear his prayer. We persevere through our sufferings because Jesus prays for us. But there's also almost a, there's a, prof- a prophecy in there. He's saying, I'm going to pray for you, and then you will turn back again. And there's also a purpose there. When he is turned back with what he's learned from this experience, Jesus admonishes him to strengthen his brothers. And the principle behind all this is that even in that awful situation of Peter's worst failure, his absolute bottom-hitting moment, really bottom-bouncing moment, he just hit the bottom and like bounced three times before he finally came to a stop. Amen? (laughs) Can you relate to that analogy? Through all that, that was, God was working in and through all of that to bring blessing and good, even in his awful, awful, awful failure where Peter was just overwhelmed. But God is bringing good out of it. The principle behind it is that God will allow us to be overwhelmed. He does allow us to be overwhelmed in order to teach us things that we would never learn otherwise in order to teach us, literally sometimes to force us to give up, to just let go, let go of self-power, let go of self-preservation, let go of self-worship, and, and just lean into him and trust in God because that's the only thing you've got left. Amen on that? You know, can you feel me? Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> Amen, girl? <laughs> Man. And the reality, what the reality is that God will overwhelm us with things for our good, to break us of this clinging to self and our own self-power, to help us to abandon self, empty ourselves, so that we then become a channel of divine power into the world. We have to be empty to do that. God will bring us into overwhelming circumstances to do that, to break the power of self and sin 
God will allow us to fail. But not just so that we fail, not so he just rubs our nose in it, but to teach us these lessons. There's this part in the AA, the Alcoholics Anonymous big book, that talks about alcoholics that get to the point in their sin where they, have, they reach a point where they no longer have the kind of defense that keeps someone from putting his hand on a hot stove. Think about that. If you're a normal person, you, you, when, you, when you're a kid, everybody hits the stove once when you're a kid, right? Once, never again, right? My kids stay like eight feet away from the stove at all times right now. Somebody has touched that on accident or they get a burn and you realize that hurts, you don't go back and touch the stove. That, what, the, what the book is, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is talking about in alcoholism, and it's true in all kinds of sin, is that sin has the power to distort our minds and distort our thinking and bring us to the point where we lose the kind of defense where we would not protect ourselves against a hot stove and so we keep going back to the stove. That's what sin is like. Sin has the power to do that to us. And so God will let us bring us into the absolute end of ourselves uh, to free us from that, to free us from clinging to self and the distortion of sin that's on us so that we can trust in him more fully and therefore enjoy the benefits of being a channel of divine power into the world. Which means that there is purpose in all of this. There was purpose in Peter's, even his worst failure in the suffering that that brought. It says he was grieved from it. He walked out of the courtyard of the high prince, uh, the high priest, weeping bitterly. Weeping bitterly. Have you been there? Man. (laughs) This is a providential passage for us this week. What it tells us is that even in our worst failures, God has purpose for us so that we can persevere through them. Even when things are bad, on the roughest days, we can know that God is going to make this good somehow, that he's allowed it, he's ordained it for us, for our good and for our growth. And so we can embrace it and walk through it as we know that Jesus is preserving us preserving us in our struggles and in our sufferings. Look at, how, look at how Jesus sticks with Peter through this whole story. I mean, it's pretty easy to see on the beach, but long before that, Jesus is sticking with him. First, he's praying for him up front. I prayed for you. Your faith is going to heal. Have faith in that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hold. And um, he prophesies that he'll turn back. He tells him that there's going to be a purpose to it. And then that look in the courtyard, I think we, we, we read that story about Luke when Jesus looks at Peter in the courtyard after the third denial and think that Jesus is like, oh yeah, you messed up now, didn't you? I'm ashamed of you, boy. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think that's what the look was about. I think given how we see Jesus with Peter through this whole process, I think Jesus is looking at him and saying, I still got you. I got you. And then we get to the beach. This beach scene, we didn't read this part, but the paragraph prior to that, it says that Jesus had started a charcoal fire on the beach and put fish on it. You know how sights and sometimes smells and scents can like bring you back to a place? 
bring you back like right into vivid memories of things that happened there. I got a couple places in OB I just cannot go to. I get flooded with awful memories. Um, this word for charcoal fire, it's only one other place in the whole Gospel of John. You know where that is? It was Peter was warming himself by the charcoal fire with the officers of the court. He's hanging out with the enemy who's just arrested Jesus, warming himself by this charcoal fire as he's denying Jesus. And so Jesus lights up this charcoal fire on the beach. <laughs> Peter's walking up, scent, smell, senses, bang, his mind goes right back to the denial, to the three denials, and then Jesus restores him three times. There's no accident why he says, makes him say, do you love me? Three times. Maybe you've heard people teach that they use different Greek words and it's escalating. This really, for, for hundreds of years, native Greek-speaking theologians from the East uh, interpreted this passage as those words really having no significant meaning, just being synonymous words. It wasn't until the 19th century when British, British theologians decided that they discerned these nuances in the words between agape and phileo, if you know the words. But really, there's no difference in the words, the reality or the, the, what he's trying to say to him, what, what he's saying here is when he says, Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? Most likely, he's talking about the fishing boats. He's, you know, Peter in our last, last chapter had just basically said, forget it, I'm done going back to fishing, just going back to my old career. And Jesus is saying, hey, let's remind her, reset. You left this a long time ago, man. Long time ago. Three years ago, I found you on the beach, and we left this behind. Let's not go back to it. Let's remember where you are now and who you serve now. That's a blessing to him. And then Jesus walks it back and undoes the sin not because he's forgiving him. He's already forgiven. Jesus just wants Peter to know that he's forgiven. He wants to know how much comfort there is. He wants him to know how much he loves him and is there with him and is going to be with him in this next chapter of life that he calls him to. And the same is true with us. God forgives us in the exact same way. He'll sit down with us through his word, through coming to church, to hearing the law and hearing the gospel over us over and over again, just pouring forgiveness and grace and mercy on us over and over and over again to remind us that we are his and nothing's changed. Because we're not here because of us, we're here because of what he's done and nothing's changing that. So, summary of all that is that God will overwhelm you, but he'll overwhelm you for your good. He'll overwhelm you to break you of self so that you rely more on Christ and experience uh, the power of the Spirit in our lives so that then we can take that and bless others with it. That brings us to point two. Point one, Jesus comforts us. Point two, we now comfort each other. In that same section of scripture from 15 through 17, Jesus three times asked Peter if he loves him. Uh, and his answer, the th- three answers that he gives Peter after Peter says, yes, of course, you know, I love you, is 
feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. He's commissioning Peter to do something specific. What Jesus had done for Peter on the beach, comforting him, forgiving him, caring for him, protecting him, loving him. He's calling now Peter, who's representing the church, to go and do the same for his people and also calling us to do the same for one another. Jesus has given us the church and given us one another, the fellowship of the church to comfort us in the wilderness that we are now in. Notice again that Jesus calls us sheep. Let's start with that. That's not a super complimentary term. Right? Sheep are not the smartest animals. I, I, I can never talk about sheep preaching again without thinking of that video with the sheep in the hole. Have you seen it? <laughs> It's so perfect. It's so perfect. Standard day of Jesus shepherding me, pulling me out of a deep hole. Uh, but it's true. It is true. At least he says in the first one, he says, feed my lambs, which is the diminutive. It's really talking about sheep as, as um, kind of the same way you talk about children is really what I got out of it when I was reading it about how he's looking at us as lambs, as tender creatures who he loves, who his compassion is over, but who need a lot of help, who need a lot of guidance, who need a lot of support. (laughs) Um, Really, tender love and care and guidance and help, really. There's a, in in 1 Timothy 3, when it talks about the qualifications for elder, um, it says that it has to be a man who has managed his household well, because... The same the skills that you learn by having kids, the softening of your heart that comes about, the way that it teaches you to, to be compassionate and slow and long-suffering and patient is stuff that you just never, you can never really learn. It's a good way to learn that, at least. Let me put that. I have learned immense amounts of compassion with my kids. When your kid gets hurt, you can't just say, tape it up and get back in there. When they, you know, when they fall off, when they're trying to get the candy off of the top shelf and they fall off and hit the counter on the way down, they come crying to you. You can't say, shouldn't have done that. And here's what you, sh-. you know, you have to sit there and, and, and cry with them and be there with them and be, just comfort them first. And then once you do that, then you can start talking about maybe it's not a good idea to try to get the knives out of the top drawer. <laughs> hypothetically speaking, right? Maybe. (laughs) So mommy doesn't have to rush to the emergency room at 11.30 at night again. Um, There's a good reason for that. The qualification for elders to manage your own household well and have faithful children is because it's the same skill set that the church needs to have in, in in working with people. Nisa says all the time that when you have kids, you have to break up with yourself. Kids will force you to break up with yourself. Before you have kids, it's all about party and you, but once you have kids and these people are depending on you, it's time to you have to break up with yourself and it needs to be about them. And having a family teaches you that. Amen? And it says, so what, he's, what he calls us to do here, what, what Jesus is calling the church to do is two things. He's calling us to feed and to tend. He's calling Peter to feed and to tend the sheep. It 
It's not long ago when I could get my kids to do just about anything for a popsicle. Like any chore, anything around the house, clean a room, make a bed, wash my car, uh, re-roof the backside of the house, whatever. I could get them to do it for a popsicle or a piece of candy. My kids loved it because that's what they loved to eat. They loved to eat. They, if it was up to them, they would eat ice cream and candy all day long and be perfectly fine with it. But me, as a parent, I can't cater to that. It might make them love me more right now, but it's going to cause them to be sickly as they grow and become older. So the church is called to feed the sheep with nutritious, balanced food. With the word and with sacrament that comes uh, through the Bible that we properly and rightly divide and, and teach. And, and what the church is supposed to do is to feed the sheep in word and sacrament, to, to view the world through the filter of the word. That's the order. We look at the world, we look at ourselves, so the order through the filter of the Bible. Establish doctrine, maintain that doctrine, not add to it, and then teach people Teach people what the Bible says about life and faith and also in worship, preach Christ to people. Those are teaching and preaching are two separate things. They get mixed up a lot. Teaching is for, is for education. Uh, preaching is about how does this text of the Bible relate to what Jesus has done for us and the gospel promises to us so that we're encouraged and strengthened. And that's what we're called to do that, not any other thing as far as preaching goes. And we're called to feed the sheep with the sacrament. There's a mystery in this. We don't know exactly how it happens, but we know that Christ has promised us that as we partake in the Lord's Supper, he's strengthening us. And so every week we do the Lord's Supper. It calls us to tend the sheep. And to tend the sheep is the administrative or the governing work or the, the discipline of the church. Discipline's a bad name, bad word in our culture, right? Discipline to us is synonymous with punishment, so and we don't like that. But it's, this is discipline in the sense of training, like the discipline of martial arts, the discipline of learning to play piano, the discipline of training and holding each other accountable and working together um, to hold each other up to make clear the boundaries and the freedom that we have in Christ, to support, encourage, challenge, admonish, and sometimes rebuke. Yikes. Sometimes the church is called to come to peep to sheep that have burrowed down the hole <laughs> you know, and say, hey, that's not a good idea, and here's why. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Pull them out again. Hey, how'd it work that time? We're called to rebuke people. We're called to come to people in love as, as we would our own children. As parents who love their children is really the model that gives and, and in patience and in long-suffering help each other to stay within the boundaries of safety that God has given us according to how he's created the world and created the church so that we will be blessed. Uh, and why, you know, because, again, sin has that distorting power. 
And we can very easily slip into the, the mode where we're putting our hand on the hot stove over and over again and not even knowing what we're doing. Uh, but the burn marks are very real on our souls and in our families and friends because Satan is real and he is trying to kill you and us or to cause you to defame the name of Christ publicly cause you to cause unbelievers to say this is a joke. He is trying to kill us and trying to kill the reputation of Jesus in the world so that the plan of God will not go forward. But praise God, God is more powerful. But here's the thing about sheep. There's a dark side to sheep. <laughs> the dark side to sheep uh, is, let me tell you a story. I actually know about sheep. When I was, a, I was in 4-H as a kid, and I raised sheep, and my very first lamb, my very first lamb was named Cream Puff. How sweet, how sweet, could, how, how sweet is that, right? She, uh, how sweet could you be, must you be with a name like Cream Puff? But I was like 11, not a big kid, uh, and we had this dirt road by our house, and I used to have to walk Cream Puff around the block. Uh, and I got to this part of the dirt road once, and Cream Puff saw something that she had. To, she saw something she liked and took off. The leash was wrapped around my hand. She pulled me right off my feet and drugged me down this dirt path for probably 20, 30 feet. Whew. Little did I know <laughs> that that was prophetic. <laughs> But she saw something she wanted. She ran off after it, and I got scraped up trying to hold her back, right? But to be fair, though, it's, it, on the other side, it's tough. It's tough to be a sheep, right? The struggle is real. Uh, whatever, whatever that thing is that, that, wants, that causes you to want to run for it, I think this is a unique time in church history that there is now a church that will cater to your need, whatever it is, whatever your sin is, whatever your heart says you must have to be okay, there is now a church that tells you that's fine and good and right, and you do not need to struggle in that. You do not need to struggle against that, against that sin. It's hard. It's hard to be a sheep. I, I was racking my brain today, thinking through church history to try to think of another time when it's been like this. There have been periods when there have been parts of the church that have broken off and taught awful things, but I don't know of a time in history where a large part of the church was dedicated towards teaching Christians uh, that whatever their desires of their hearts were, were perfectly fine and good. And that is, I think, the hardest thing that we face now as a culture, as a, as a church culture. Well, here's the thing. There's two temptations you know, when Cream Puff ran off, I had two, two awful temptations. One was to beat her. You know, I'm going to beat that sheep for what she did to me. The other temptation would be to just neglect her, just, just leave her alone and just not ever engage in walking or caring for her anymore. And that's very symbolic of how the church can be too. The church can either beat the sheep. With the law, we, the church, church can either come in and take people who are sinning and struggling in their sin and try to beat them into submission with the law, which just creates mean sheep. But on the other hand, you can also, we can also, on the other erring side of it, we can neglect the sheep. We can scatter the sheep, even in our own congregations. Because how can we 
support, encourage, challenge, admonish, rebuke even one another if we don't if you don't if the church doesn't even know who its people are. We can get so big and be or have our idol be to be so big that we lose sight of the call that Jesus calls us to, that the elders and the deacons are the ones to care for the people. We can enlist the help of volunteers, and that's great. But we never have the right as a church to, uh, to delegate that responsibility to other people. We never have that right. And so it's very possible for a church to get to the point unwittingly to where they are neglecting their sheep because they just don't even know who they are. But this isn't just talking to the church, it's also talking to us as people. We're also called to comfort one another in all of these same ways. There's this great book called Side by Side, which is a book about us and how we minister to one another in all these same ways. Um, you know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's a lot of comfort. But God comforts us. God comforts us through Christ, through the ministry of the church, and then we're called to comfort one another. So what that means is that when your friend takes off down the dirt road and you're attached by the leash and he or she drags you 30 feet down the dirt road and scrapes you all up, you still have to comfort. You still are called to, to be in that relationship and to love and to comfort and to can be caring and be concerned and to be forgiving in all of those things as we work with one another. Summing all of that up, Jesus has given us comfort in this wilderness of sin and death through the church and through one another. Bringing to the third point, as we persevere into life. So, Jesus comforts us so we can comfort each other as we persevere into life. Look at verses 18 through 22. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is talking to Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. The reality check is that Jesus calls us all to share in his sufferings. Individually, That can look very different from person to person, but nobody is exempt. And it doesn't do any good to compare ourselves to the providence or to the suffering of other people. Jesus is saying, you be concerned with what I have called you to do. Not what he or she has been called to do. You be concerned with what I have called you to. 
know, when John wrote this gospel, it's probably 90 AD or so when he's writing this and he's remembering back to this day as if it was yesterday when he was on the beach with his friend Jesus. And by this point, he's a very old man now. Most of his friends are dead. All of his friends are dead. Peter's been dead for 25 years. Peter was crucified in Rome. John's at the very end of his life. And he's the only one who's going to die a natural death. As he remembers his story, Jesus has just told Peter that not only is he going to live this life of, of suffering as he cares for a bunch of mean, grumbly sheep, he says, at the end of it, you're going to be crucified, just like I was crucified. He says that, At the end of his life, someone else is going to stretch out his hands. And that's true. That happened. But Jesus says to him, follow me. Follow me in this. Man, tough gig, right? Peter gets what he's saying, so he looks quickly. He looks looks around for... He balks at it, really, first looking for justice by comparison, and he sees John, and he says, okay, what, Lord, about this guy? Is this guy, is John going to suffer in the same way I do? And Jesus' answer is, don't you worry about John. Don't worry about what I've called John to do. You follow me. Don't worry about what I call other people to. That's not your business. You worry about being faithful and persevering in what I call you to. And that looks different for everybody, right? The, I mean, on one hand, the problem with that is it's very easy to judge God when we start comparing ourselves by the, see, the perceived sufferings or trials or tribulations of other people because we naturally gravitate towards the people who seem to have it better than us and we think that God is unfair. But you just can't tell what's going on inside other people's hearts. You really don't know. I mean, if we we're going to do that, we'd be wiser to look at the people who have it much worse than us and consider our suffering against the suffering of the saints uh, in Eritrea or in Sudan or the saints in, in uh, feudal Japan or the saints that are being persecuted. They're suffering. That's the suffering we should be comparing ourselves to. And we should be saying to ourselves, oh, that God would allow us to suffer like that for Christ. So how do we do it? What do we do when we see the suffering in front of us, when we see that we're called to die, we're called to death, or really that thing that looks like death because it's calling us to die to self? How do we find the strength to follow Jesus in what he calls us to do? Well, look at, look at the scene on the beach again. G, John is trying to find a way out. He looks to John. What about this guy? Not in your business. And then Peter turns back to Jesus on the beach. Who is, he's just told him he's going to be crucified. And Jesus is right in front of him. What does he see? He sees the fresh wounds on Jesus' hands and the wound in his side and on his feet. And it's not only does he realize that Jesus is calling him 
to follow him in what he's just done, and that Jesus has done it first, but that what Jesus did, his crucifixion, has purchased for Peter something that the world could never give him, something that it's foolish to try to hold on to the world when we know we have something so much better. He's been adopted into the family of God, and he knows this. He knows that God is his Father, that heaven, that the new earth, the new creation is his eternal home, and that what Jesus has done and the marks that he bears in his flesh in front of his face is the evidence, and the resurrection is the evidence of the proof that those things are real and that he has those things to look forward to. And so he takes a deep breath and probably says, okay. And when the time came... He did it. The story is, the tradition is, they crucified Peter's wife first. And Peter went out and sat with her by the cross. Took her three days to die. And for three days he sat by her side saying, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Not just remember him, but remember what he has done for us. Remember what he's won for us. Remember where you are going now. And he strengthened her. And the next day they took him out and crucified him upside down. The second thing is that we need to remember that following me doesn't end in the death or the dying to self, which feels like death. (laughs) The follow me ends in resurrection and ascension. When we get so fogged over about entering into the pain and the suffering of what Christ is calling us to right now that we can lose sight of the big picture. You know, John is writing this. It's 25 years after Peter's own death. It's, his death is fast approaching. He's got to be thinking of that final reward and of the fact that he is about to follow Christ into glory. And so ultimately when, we, when Jesus says, you follow me, It doesn't stop at the first bus stop of the first suffering pangs of giving up self in order to live for Christ. It ends in in glorification. It ends in glory. And the last thing, the third thing that we can that strengthens us to follow Jesus, to call in what he calls us to do, is that our death, or what feels like death to us, glorifies God. It says, Peter says, he told Peter about the death that he would die by what kind of death that Peter was going to glorify God. Which means ultimately that even our struggle and our suffering on the world, whatever we're called to do, has purpose to it. It's not meaningless. If you love God which is a sign of the spirit life within us, then glorifying God, no matter what he calls us to do, is the most purposeful, meaningful thing we could ever do. Now, you know, I know what some of you are struggling with because we talk, we're a small church. Some of you I don't know, but everybody's called to die some way, some shape, some form. Maybe God is calling you to surrender your sexuality as you would like it. Maybe God is calling you to submit to the order that he's established in the church and the world. Maybe God is calling you to a life of poverty. 
Maybe God's calling you to a life of temptations of wealth, which is the Western world problem. That's our problem. Maybe he's calling you to illness. Maybe he's calling you to a life of simplicity and service, and you're bucking against it. Maybe he's calling you to a life of humility. Maybe he's calling you to a simple life of loving your wife on Saturday. <laughs> On every day, not loving my wife in the great conceptual realities of my abstract thought, but literally getting in it and dying for your wife or dying for your, for your husband on a day-to-day basis, the hard part. And we're bucking against it, and it's hard. But if it was meaningless... We couldn't do it. If it was meaningless, we'd check out, we'd give up. But what this is telling us, what Jesus, the last word that he gives to us is this. This has meaning. This has greater purpose than anything on earth. Everything on this planet is going to vaporize at some point in time. All the systems that this world conjures up according to its bright ideas are all going to pass away. The most beautiful thing that we create is going to go up in flames But the reality of God and our time on earth glorifying God with our lives and honoring him with what we think, say, and do has eternal value, eternal meaning, eternal purpose. It's the most purposeful thing we can do. And because of that, we can do it. Amen? So, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is beautiful to our ears. Lord, you've called us all to hardship of some sort, of some kind. And Lord, we all buck against the goads. Your word, every, every one of us here, your word is, is challenging us in some ways that is unnatural to our sinful desires. And we repent, but we also praise your holy name, knowing as we see from the text that you are here with it, in it, and through it, Lord, that you are not casting us off because we're struggling, but that you are with us, preserving us, praying for us, interceding for us before the Father, even now, through all these things, so that we can have sure and certain hope that when your call for us to follow you ends in perfection and glory and peace. So, Lord, pray that you would help us to remember that and help us to stay close to you. Help us to make worship the central fact of our lives. Help us to make a rhythm of prayer throughout our days so that we will constantly remember this. And in the little things, when you call us to the thing that feels like death, we would look at it and say, no, that is not the pang of death. That is the birth pang of life. And I praise your name for it, Lord. We praise your holy name. We thank you as we approach the table that you are the giver of all good things. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.